All right, and welcome everybody to an episode of EM Over Easy. This is your host, Andy Little, with my co-host, Drew Kalnow. Good day. So we are joined here today by Mahesh Polavarapu. He's an administrative fellow and attending physician at Christiana Care in Delaware, talking to us today about this cool idea of how to change culture um, in your residency program and in your shop. And I think this is a great topic to bring you on the show for. Mahesh, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a great opportunity. I appreciate it. So real quick, before we jump into what's going to be an awesome session, just want to remind our listeners, we have uh, some new features on our website. So be sure to sign up for our email if you haven't already done so. We promise not to spam you. We're sending out one to two emails a month, just getting a check of what Andy, Tanner, and I are up to, what we're reading, what we're listening to, uh, what we're watching, and some other cool stuff going on. Uh, Be sure to follow us on all our social media sites and support what we are doing. So thanks so much. So Mahesh, you reached out to us, which I'm really happy that you did, because this was a topic that we had wanted to cover, but really didn't know how to go about doing it. And we always love it when somebody reaches out to us and wants to cover content that we just didn't know how to figure out. So today we're going to be talking about culture change in your residency and in your emergency department. So why don't you kind of introduce the topic to us? Sure. So for me, even though I am an administrative fellow, I think one of the things that I've really prided myself in is academics and how to try to bridge that gap between academics and administration. I think that's something that we don't always get a chance to do well. And and so one of the things that as I started my fellowship is I was looking for opportunities where I could essentially form a project that would work to try to bridge that gap and kind of see how it goes. And and I was I was kind of learning on my own and looking at theories that we use in kind of the administrative realm, which we actually borrow from other industries, is kind of saying, then how do we kind of cross-teach between ourselves within the department? I think most departments are structured in a way that even though we are all EM, we have our ultrasound people, we have our academic people, we have our administrative people. And sometimes uh, there could be a little bit more collaboration that, that works between those silos. And so I was really looking to figure out a way that I could cross-teach between administration and the residents program. It just so happened that we had a project that uh, needed a little bit of revamping within our residency at the same time. And so it was a a great opportunity for for me to kind of play in the sandbox a little bit. So I'm confused a little bit. You said that there's collaboration between academics and administration. Um, (laughs) Yes, that's right. It does happen. There's there's my sarcasm. Yeah. Yeah. It's difficult, and and you're that's an unenviable situation to be in. But you're totally right, and and we experience that even in smaller academic shops, where uh, the majority of our attendings are technically core faculty for the program, just because we're not a huge uh, a huge department. We only cover two emergency departments, but there certainly are non uh, core faculty, and then there's still the the staffing parameters we have to go through, and it, there's always a fight. You know what what's more important: education metrics meeting your patient per hour ratios and and money and there's there's no right answer there's a lot of wrong answers so i'm curious how we we bridge this gap yeah you're right and i i think that it's even something that i noticed even very early on right it was trying to play that balance of you know I'm learning how to be an administrator, but I, I also do pride myself, and I think a lot of us do, in, in being strong, being academic, being a, a, a clinician, and, and making sure that I was cognizant of playing to you know both sides. And yeah, I, I think that it's it's something that uh, we can we can all be a little bit better at. And, and I'm glad I had an opportunity to try to try it during my fellowship. So Mahesh, when you kind of decided to tackle this, what were the factors that you, I mean, you brought up some of them, but what were kind of the things you knew that you had to figure out before you implemented change? So I think for me, it's, it's the biggest thing is we always talk about, you got to figure out where you want to go and then work backwards to figure out where you want to start, right? And, and, and so the, the big overlying theme for me is 
if I were to look back on my time as a fellow in this project 12 months from now, what would I consider a successful project? And that's really what I what I started with. And then I worked back from that saying, what of those pieces that I consider success are already in place? There's, I think, very few times where you just have to break everything down to the core and start over. I think a lot of the times, you know, the most effective change is one that's not so much revolutionary, but more evolutionary. And and I hate saying that without giving credit to someone that I know. Um, I know someone that works in a patent office and they say, recently, you know, there's not so much revolutionary change that we're seeing. Everything is so much evolutionary, but it's great. And and I kind of hung on to that. And I said, how do I make that work for myself? And it's one of the things that I noticed with even the project and just a, a little bit of background on the project that I took on was airway quality check. So I know that airways are obviously airway equipment and airway supplies are very big for every ED. And in our shop, it's the essentially the responsibility of the residents to make sure that our airway supplies are, are up to snuff and, and they do it basically with pre-shift checks. And for the most part, the process uh, works well, but it almost seems like there's always these iterations almost every four to six years where we kind of say, you know, there could be something that could be better with this project. And then we institute a change. And then four to six years later, we go, you know, something else needs to be changed. And it's this constant cycle. And so I kind of said, you know, how do I go about making a change that's going to be sustainable, that maybe five, 10 15 years from now, we say, you know, we don't need to change anything about this. It's, it's great the way it is. And so I kind of started from that. And, and really, it was figuring out what works well, keeping that in place, and then figuring out what we could make better and going about trying to make it better. Yeah, I really like that idea of stealing. Now, we're gonna, I'm going to steal it from you that it's, it's evolution, not revolution, because I think so many times people want to change and they, they want to make drastic severe changes. Andy and I have been guilty of this uh, many times in maybe our department. And it's, it's really good to take a step back that oftentimes the people you're asking to make those changes are the people that implemented the system in the first place. So there's going to be personality and, and personal opinion involved in it. But also oftentimes we don't need to revolutionize what we're doing. What we're doing probably already works in some form or fashion. So the idea of uh, evolving that to be better and improving as opposed to replacing and completely changing makes really a lot more sense. And I, I think that's a great way to describe it. it. It really, really hits home at the idea behind change, because I think one of the things that inevitably we're going to talk to talk about in this episode is change is hard, that the people that you're forcing change upon really don't necessarily like it. Uh, and it's a lot easier if we're making tweaks and changes as opposed to replacing processes. I mean, it's one of those things that, I, and I'm guilty of this too. When I was beginning this project, uh, the first month of my fellowship, I had a long list of things that I said, if I changed all of these things, I think I could make it better. And it was just getting the feedback initially from the residents being like, I don't think you need to change X, Y, and Z. I think those actually work pretty well. And I had just graduated. I was a resident at the same program and a little bit of introspection. I was like, yeah, those do work well. I don't need to change those things. So I think we're all we're all guilty of it at some point. It's just being cognizant of it and then and making modifications. So Mahesh, I think what your story kind of highlights a point you, that you brought up in your outline is the idea that change isn't about process, but it's about culture. Can you kind of go into that for a little bit for us? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think sometimes that when we talk about change, you have to talk about what are you trying to get from it, right? And and there's really a couple of ways that you can do that. It's change for the sake of change a lot of times is I make something up, I write something up, I send out an email, maybe I do a little bit of education, I say, here's this change that I created. And then you kind of see where it goes. And you maybe you try to intervene a little bit, and try to make modifications, but you never really build it into your core. When you talk about your core values, who you are as a group, as an individual, as a department, and I think that speaks more to culture. 
culture. So change is good. It has its its purpose in the short term, especially. It gives you really great short-term results. But as soon as a wind blows, sometimes change doesn't really outlast that. Where if you say, this is a culture, so this is who we are going to be. This is going to be what defines us. Even when there are things that get in the way of that, maybe, for example, with us, with the airway project, like as soon as we put everything in place and we thought we had a great system in place, you know, the pandemic hit and we had to obviously make some changes to the airway uh, process. And that was really a testament of, did I really just make a change to make a change because it's going to fall apart now? Or did I really institute a culture change? Because if I did, it should be able to withstand whatever forces are driving you know, factors that we didn't initially anticipate. And so my focus initially was saying that, you know, to the residents and to to everyone I was working with, you know, this isn't just a change for change sake, like this is going to take a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of belief in that there's human fallibility at play here. And so we have to incorporate that and make this into a culture where especially if you look at the interns, they go on to being second years to being third years, we have a combined program, so fourth and fifth years, where you just say, this is our airway culture. This is how it's been since I was an intern and it would last anything. So when you find that thing that you want to change and you're going to begin down that process, walk us through how you approach it. I know you mentioned you you look at the, the final product or the final change first and then work your way backwards, but give us a little more insight into what that looked like with your airway project, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, in broad terms, like what do I can consider success, right? And if you think about it from like a book theory, some might say that, oh, well, that's easy to define, right? You have all of your residents check all the airway boxes 100% of the time, and they're always accurate. That's success. Anything below that is considered unsuccessful. That's great. That's a great aspiration to have. But for me, that's that wasn't realistic. And I think that for me, what, what another saying that I like to go off of is sometimes, you know, the greatest enemy of greatness is perfection. And I think that if you pr- pursue perfection, you're going to fall significantly short. And so for me, it was that's not what I'm going for. I'm going for what is acceptable and sustainable? And so for me, that was, it's not going to be 100% of the time. There's so many human factors that you just can't control. There's situational factors. We work in an ED, God forbid. I mean, we can't control everything. So 100% is not feasible. But if I'm saying that every single airway is getting checked three times a day, then maybe I say 75%. That accounts for a little bit of leeway there where you know, you have a resident that comes in and the whole department is falling apart and they don't have time to look through their airway supplies as diligently as they need to. They need to go in and take care of patient care. And so maybe they don't get that airway check recorded that time. That's still okay. I mean, it's patient care that's involved here. So maybe you say 75%. So I that was a one that I spent a little bit of time, I should say, working with. And a lot of that came down to saying, where do you set that number? Then do I say 50%? I mean, that's a lot of leeway. But now am I saying that my process isn't going to be that great because only 50% of the time the airway boxes are getting checked. So you have to balance the human factor there of saying, you know, what's less than perfection, but what is still acceptable. So once I started with that number, then I started, then I looked at where are we right now? And the biggest thing that I found for us is, you know, our process was great, but really there was no way of tracking it, right? It was a, a resident comes in, they check the airway box. If it needs to be, if supplies need to be replaced, they replace them and then they kind of go on their way. But if there is this instance where you open up the box and it doesn't have what you need in it, you really can't track back to, you know, where things may have fallen apart. And this is not from a policing standpoint. I think that's the biggest thing here is I wanted to make sure 
whatever changes I made did not come off as I am policing this process. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to give you 10 lashings if you don't do what you're supposed to do. This was more of a let's hold each other accountable. And how do we do that? And then if something doesn't go the way that we want it to, how do we go back and figure out what the source error was? Again, not on an individual level, but on a systems level. And so it was creating that kind of process in place that was important for me is how do you kind of go back and and figure out where things may have gone wrong if they go wrong so that you can address them and not just be, oh, well, the process didn't work. I guess we have to start over from scratch. So I love it how when, when you talk about this, it brings me back to an episode that we had that you probably haven't listened to, but an episode that we did with Drew, myself and Tanner. And we talked about this. It was the idea that you have an event, you have a response, you have an outcome. And I love the idea that you're focusing on the outcome and then building it backwards. Because I feel like too many times where these projects get fouled up and as they, they look at an event and then they focus really, really hard to manufacture the appropriate response and then the outcome isn't what you want and, and then you feel like it didn't work. And so I, I love how you're bringing up the idea that really if we focus on outcomes and work our way back, the, the event and the response are going to kind of tailor make themselves. And then I love it how you talk about you know fa- people are involved. And I think that's probably a bigger issue that I think Drew and I and others that have gone through this have happened is, is that we have great plans. You insert people. And then it might not be perfect and being okay with that idea, which I feel like too many times we consider that failure when in reality, it's just what actually was probably going to happen regardless. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think for me, the other thing is, and in, in a lot of my focus during the fellowship was more on the quality control and process improvement side. And one of the big things that I learned is, yes, everything that we're doing is to is to get to an end goal, is to get to a to an outcome. But if you and not just focusing on that outcome, actually, if you focus on the process that is going to get you to that outcome, that outcome is likely going to be secondary. It's going to happen as long as that process is built well. And if the outcome is not what you want it to be, there could be other circumstances where the outcome is what you want it to be, but it just happened by luck. It wasn't so much that the process was built in a way to get you there. So I focus not only on just getting to an outcome that I'd hope to achieve, but what was the process that was going to get me there. So certainly part of the process is involving the right stakeholders early and getting buy-in by the people that can help make the change and, and actually enforce process change. What recommendations do you have about making sure you're engaging not just the department in general or the group in general that you're going to do changes, but the true stakeholders that can drive that change forward? Because let's be honest, just because we want to change something and we think we have a great idea doesn't mean that we can even move forward with that project without getting the right people involved. I think the the biggest thing is just ask around and socialize your idea. I think more than anything else, right? Just if you have something that you want to do, regardless of who you think might be involved, you're almost always going to find that there's shadow stakeholders. And unless you ask around and kind of say, hey, here's an idea. What do you think about this idea? Or who else do you think that this inf- uh, impacts? And how do I get them involved? I did a lot of socializing on this initially, all the way down to, like I said, the residents, right? You don't want to create a process and then tell the residents what to do. I wanted to say, hey, here's what I'm thinking of doing. How does this impact you? Are there blind spots that I'm not finding? here and get their feedback. And I did a lot of that initially to begin with before I even started on my process or figuring out how I was going to change things. And it did identify, again, shadow stakeholders that I wouldn't have even thought about. So I I think, yeah, like like I said, socializing and just asking a lot of questions. You got to be, like I say, you got to be dumb and then you get a lot of good answers. I like that idea of identifying the shadow stakeholder because it it seems to me on projects that I've gotten derailed, um, the it's a person who I didn't think was going to get in my way or get in the project's way, you know, be an opponent to what's going on that 
became really clear that they were going to potentially derail the project. And had I just taken a step back and looked, find that that shadow stakeholder, I think I would have been a lot more successful in getting that person on board early, and then maybe not had an opponent, maybe not necessarily somebody supporting it, but at least a neutral player as, a, as, to, as opposed to somebody who can actually shut it down. Um, that's a great way to describe that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I know we like to say, you know, sometimes it's easier to ask for forgiveness, but if you can, if you can ask for permission, it also goes a really, really long way. Beg for forgiveness is better after you've asked for permission and decided to move forward anyway. You know, that's the, <laughs> right. That's, well, I thought I thought maybe what you really meant was, sure, go ahead and give it a shot, but uh, right. no, I was wrong. There was a... Your response was lost in translation. Yeah, if, yes, if you were speaking Spanish, and I thought I knew what you said. So <laughs> I used I used my alternative facts and truths to determine that I should move ahead with this project. <laughs> right. So to kind of wrap it up, I really like this idea that you have it towards the end of your outline, and really towards I think the end of this this idea is that going in with the idea that there is no foolproof plan will actually make this an easier process for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I went into this, even for myself, right? I went into this knowing that I was going to make mistakes as I tried to institute a change. And so if I'm going to say that I'm going to be fallible, you have to say that the people that, uh, the other people that are going to be involved are going to be just as fallible, if not more. And so I wanted to be sure that the system that I was creating was not a punitive one. It wasn't one that said, you made a mistake. Now, like I said, you get 20 lashings. It was more you know, a mistake happened here, or the outcome that we expected was not the one that happened. You know, let's talk about what actually happened. Was it just simply human error? Is this like a one off? It's not going to happen again. Or is there a barrier that's allowing you to or is causing you, I should say, not to be able to um, produce the outcome that we had hoped for? Or is it something that the system is set up in such a way that it's actually um, setting you up to make mistakes. And that needs to be addressed on a system level, not on an individual level. And so that I, I also spent a lot of time and this is where I talk about culture change, right? So from the beginning of instituting this change, which was back in October, there was a continuous involvement of educating people, working with people, trying to make things better, and never saying that the system was failing, just looking at progress. And I kept seeing it. I think that was a great thing is because of the way that I was tracking everything. I kept seeing progress that was going in a positive direction. And so I didn't have to focus on individual events. I could kind of focus on the big picture. And I did a lot of a lot of, I should say, individual kind of um, structured feedback with the residents uh, kind of said, you know, if this was a first time, hey, just FYI, here's a new process, try to take a look at it. Um, let's see if we can be better moving forward. If, you know, things were still happening where, you know, maybe there was a resident or a group of residents that were not living up to the the outcome expectations, try and meet with them on an individual basis to be like, all right, let's sit down and talk, right? Is there, what's going on here that's preventing us from not reaching that outcome that we want? And the, the things that I found were actually pretty surprising. Um, uh, one of the things that I noticed is, so we were using a QR code system where you can then track the exact time that a box is checked. Well, some of those QR codes on an Android system weren't working the way that I thought they were working. And so specifically, our outcomes weren't looking so well. So if I were to not have sat down and talked to those individuals and figured that part of it out, I would have said the people were failing. It actually weren't, it wasn't the people at all. It was a system that was failing them. So once I made that change, your outcomes got a lot better, right? There was one particular individual who said, listen, for me, it, it's it's because th this requires me to come in 15 minutes before my shift, which is totally fine. But listen, I've got kids and sometimes the shifts are at four o'clock and it's right when, you know, the kids also need my attention and there's just times where I just can't make it in. And 
you can't, it's very hard to take a punitive approach to something like that, right? You have to work within, you have to work within the people and the, and the, the way that, you know, their, their tendencies are, it's a, this is a great person. I knew it. So we were able to identify something there that was a barrier to him producing the outcome that we had hoped for. And we worked around that barrier. We said, Hey, so it looks like, you know, 7am is not an issue for you. Um, it looks like the midnight's not an issue for you. Maybe when you're coming in around your 4pm shift, you talk to the person that's already there and say, Hey, can you take care of this for me? If your shift's not too busy and I'll pay you back on the back end. And all of a sudden his outcomes got a lot better because we worked with him on an individual level. So I think that me going in saying this is not going to be foolproof. There's going to be human fallibility. We're going to address it on an individual level as much as we can. And we're also going to address it on a systems level wherever we can, I think led to a much better outcome than I would have had otherwise. That's really great advice looking at, at all the ma- multiple players. And, and so often we think that we have a technology that can solve so many issues. And then we find out that the technology itself is causing a lot of the issues. And uh, it's it's always easy to blame people. It's harder to blame a system. So as we bring this to a close, outside of the medical industry, what are some resources you think would be really valuable for our listeners to go to in order to get an idea about change within industry, uh, military, things like that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there. There's so much. It's almost information overload. I think for me, uh, there's a there's a couple of really great like books out there just to kind of learn a little bit. If Disney were to run your hospital is a fantastic one. If you think about just like the principles, right? So lean principles that that Toyota has really kind of epitomized. There's Six Sigma. There's so many. For me, the biggest one uh, going back to like is human fallibility, the outcomes, the process. Something called Just Culture. There's some great articles on there about what is just culture. What does that mean? outside of healthcare in the industry and then specifically what does it mean in healthcare I think is fantastic you'll find a ton of articles on just culture so that's really what I would recommend people to just get a background about things well Mahesh we really appreciate you coming on the show today to talk to us about this idea of culture change and changing processes and how you've applied that over the course of your fellowship we hope that our listeners take the time to look at some of the resources that'll be in the show notes uh, for the blog post and then take the time to really Go over what you currently do and figure out how ways you can change your culture in your in your department or whatever process you need to change in your life and use some of these principles to do that. So Mahesh, again, we appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This was great. And then, of course, for our listeners, don't forget to follow us on our social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Subscribe to our email and visit our blog site. And I just want to say a special thank you, Mahesh, for giving Andy his next book to read because it said Disney in the title. Oh, there you go. That was unexpected. Thanks so much. No problem.